Welcome back, everyone. We're continuing in our study here on the Bible, racism, and social justice. Over our last three times together, we've been working through, of course, Scripture and what it reveals to us about justice. And we began with God and with His revelation of Himself and His justice, and then continued with God creating mankind in His image to imitate and uphold God's justice where we owe justice to all other image bearers in this world. But then, of course, we all know that sin entered into this world, and so did broken relationships, which is why we have been separated from God and spiritual death, and this brought the curse of physical death. It's also why we live selfishly then with one another. And so we live with relational hostility, which has entered into our marriages and families and moved out into all of our relationships in society. And as a result, we take care or take advantage of others and even kill them to further ourselves in this world. We are a people who love ourselves more than God, more than others. And so we are unjust when we are unfair and show favoritism in our treatment of others. And when those that are in positions of power within a society produce policies which unfairly favor the treatment of some over others, this then produces oppression. And uh, this is what we've seen throughout the Old Testament as humanity plunges ever deeper into the depths of sin. But God chooses to separate Abraham and his descendants from the nations out of love to then bless the nations. And after growing through the ethnic oppression of Egypt and slavery, God miraculously sets them free to become the nation of Israel to live as God's people in God's land and under God's rule. So God gives them a standard of his righteousness through his law for them to obey and keep, and they were to live righteously and justly according to his law in the sight of the nations so that the nations would then be drawn into covenant with God in repentance and faith. But what happened? Israel was not the righteous and just people that God had called them to be through his covenants, and they too, like the nations around them, showed favoritism and partiality. They too practiced injustice and oppression. So as, an old, as the Old Testament comes to an end, we see that God himself must be the one who will bring righteousness and justice into this world. It is God himself that is the one who will end oppression. So that's a little bit of where we've been, but now we turn the page over into the New Testament, where we come to the cross of Christ, where Christ comes into this world. In Jesus Christ, God himself became man in the miracle of the incarnation to take our place and to succeed where we failed. So Christ essentially relived out the history of Israel in obedience to God's law, where he kept God's covenant and upheld God's righteousness. That's why Jesus is the true Son of God, which the nation of Israel failed to be in their sinfulness, and Christ becomes the one through whom the nations of the world are blessed. We see this first, then, in Christ's life of righteousness. Christ, too, like Israel, was forced to leave the Promised Land to live in Egypt. And after being baptized by John the Baptist, he too was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And so as Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, we read in Matthew 
4, verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what does Jesus do? He goes up on a mountain to preach the law to the multitudes. You see, the whole Gospel of Matthew is structured to show Christ's fulfillment of God's covenant promises throughout the Old Testament. But we can turn together to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. Because here we learn more about his ministry. And in the midst of his preaching and healing, Matthew explains how what Christ is doing fulfills what God had prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. So let's read then together in Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust." So Christ declares that justice has finally come, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentile nations of the world. And do you see how the nations will be united under him who sends forth justice? But now let's turn to Luke, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, where Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth, and enters into the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day. What happens next? Again, let's read together. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So again, Christ fulfills God's prophetic promise to liberate the oppressed and bring justice into this world. Well, how does Christ send forth justice to victory? How does Christ set at liberty those who are oppressed? He addresses the root cause of injustice and oppression, which is sin. The injustice we experience is a reflection of the greater injustice in our hearts towards God by not worshiping Him as He deserves in our unrighteousness. And the oppression of God's people revealed the greater oppression that mankind suffers under our slavery to Satan in sin. So notice, Jesus doesn't lead a political movement to address the injustice and oppression of Israel. He doesn't work for social revolution to right the wrongs of the society than what the vulnerable had suffered through. 
He doesn't begin a religious group to devote themselves to moral reform or humanitarian efforts. All of these would have been misguided attempts to band-aid the problems rather than to actually bring healing and restoration. Christ's solution was much more radical and successful. So we consider not only then Christ's life of righteousness, but of course then his death for sinners. And let's read John 12, verses 23 to 33 together. Because here Jesus speaks of his solution to the problem of sin. And in these verses, Christ is speaking to his disciples where he explains the purpose for which he came to the world. So again, John 12, verses 23 to 33. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name." Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So Christ dies under the death of God's wrath that we deserve for our sin. And then he is raised with resurrection life, overcoming the curse of sin and death, so that we receive this eternal life to enjoy in God's presence. See, it's on the cross where God's justice and his love meet. God's Justice requires punishment for our sin, and His love offers His Son to be punished as our substitute. So when Jesus was lifted up from the earth on the cross, what does it say here? He draws all peoples to Himself. In Christ, then, a new humanity is created from all nations, which lives under the reign of King Jesus as citizens of His heavenly kingdom. But how will this new humanity come together? By Christ sending out his disciples with the gospel of salvation to make more disciples from the nations. This is the great commission which he gave to his apostles after his resurrection from the dead in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I know many of us know these verses well. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Christ commands us then to make disciples of all the nations, which again we have seen is speaking of the ethnic groups of the world. These are the nations. 
So once Christ gives us this ministry, this church, he ascends to heaven where he now rules over this world. So we began by considering the cross of Christ, but this brings us then to the church of Christ. And we see Christ beginning to draw all peoples to himself as his church grows and spreads through the book of Acts and then continues through the letters of the New Testament. So let's go then to the book of Acts. Because Christ's church begins in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost where we read in verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the Holy Spirit filled Christ's apostles, appearing as tongues of fire, they began to speak with other tongues or languages of the nations who were gathered there through the Holy Spirit. So they were all amazed and marveled at hearing their own languages spoke by these Galileans who followed Jesus. It's then that the Apostle Peter stands up and preaches the gospel to them. And when he is done, let's read what happens next in verses 37 to 42. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day three thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So the division of the ethnic groups, which God began at the Tower of Babel by confusing their languages, is now being reversed through the Church of Christ. And as the church spread throughout Israel and beyond, so did persecution against these Christians. So let's turn then to Acts chapter 9. Because here that we see the resurrected Christ appearing to Paul, who's also known as Saul, and a Jewish leader who hated the church and was persecuting the disciples of Christ. Well, in his encounter with Christ, Paul is called as Christ's apostle then to the Gentiles. He went from being a persecutor to being a chosen apostle, and Listen then to what Ananias was told here in this chapter, verses 15 and 16, as God sent him to meet with Paul. Read, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And this is then what we see through the rest of the book of Acts. Paul preaching Christ as he journeyed among the Gentile peoples, where more and more churches are planted as souls are saved and they're gathered together in local assemblies. So there was the beginning of Christ's church through Acts 2 and, of course, Acts 9. But then we move from the beginning of Christ's church to consider the unity of of Christ's church. We learn more about Christ's church by turning to these letters 
that we have in the New Testament that are written by his apostles to local churches. So let's go, for example, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, where Paul gives the clearest explanation of how the gospel of Christ reconciles us with God. That's verses 1 through 10. And also reconciles Jews and Gentiles with each other. It's here in verses 11 to 22. And while it's long, I can't do better than reading Paul's own words here and expressing the unity of which we all have in the church of Christ. So let's read together Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the, Christ, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the middle wall of separation has been broken down, and now Jews and Gentiles are joined together as one new man from the two, reconciling them both to God in one body through the cross, which puts to death the enmity. We're united then together as a holy temple in the Lord, who are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The cross then unites all ethnic groups into one church through the blood of Christ then we can also consider the equality of Christ church because in Christ church we're united as equals since we all alike have been saved by coming to the cross through his through our faith in his death for us see the apostle paul also speaks of our equality when he writes to the churches of galatia so let's go then to galatians chapter 3 verses 26 to 29 where we read well-known words. What an encouragement Christ's people receive. Hear from God's Word. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
You see then how we are all one in Christ Jesus. And while this doesn't erase our ethnic identities, it does bring us together as a glorious kaleidoscope of colors who are equally members of the one body of Christ. Now, I love how Thaddeus Williams summarizes this truth in his excellent book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And I would heartily encourage you to pick up a copy of this book and read it when it's released. But listen to what Williams writes here. Jews shouldn't resent Greeks or vice versa, though it would have been easy to build a historic case for such resentment. Slaves shouldn't resent the free or vice versa, though it would have been easy to build a historic case for such resentment. Women shouldn't resent men or vice versa, though it would have been easy to build a historic case for such resentment. And then Williams continues, All us versus them thinking, all group divisions, all grievances are wonderfully transcended by a shining new group identity. You are all one in Christ. In Christ, ethnic enemies become family. Oppressed and oppressors become brothers and sisters. And privileged and underprivileged become equally loved siblings under the same all-loving Father. This is the glorious truth of equality that we have together in Christ. It is Christ, then, who gives us our identity as his people. And so we see here the beauty of the church of Christ. But finally, I want us to consider the countercultural community of Christ. After all, what does it mean to live as Christ's church in this world? How should we live as saved sinners? Well, again, Christ himself reveals our answers to these questions. We begin then by considering the social ethic of Christ's church. See, Christ did not save us to exist as individuals who live in isolation, but he saved us as a church who live together in love. This, then, is his social ethic for the church, and this becomes clear in John's gospel. So again, let's read a few passages of Scripture from this gospel. First, we start in John, John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this is Christ's commandment for his church. Love one another and the world will recognize the truthfulness of Christ's love in our lives as we show love for one another. But then we come to the next chapter. Let's go to John 14, verses 15 to 18, where Christ then says to his disciples, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So when we have been saved by the love of Christ, 
our hearts will be changed so that we too will love him. And his love is not mere sentiment or mystical connection, but it is an active love of obedience to God's law. Do you remember how Christ summarized the law of God? In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, Jesus speaks of our commandment to love. How? By loving God and loving our neighbor. And so we keep the commandments of Christ as we love God and we love our neighbor. And we love by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promises to give us as he sends his Spirit into our hearts. So our love begins in the church and then reaches outside of the church into this world. But now let's continue again to John chapter 15. John 15 and read verses 11 to 17. Because here Jesus says to his disciples, These things I have commanded, or excuse me, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So because Christ has chosen us to be his church, we will bear the fruit of love towards one another. And of course, this love leaves no place for injustice or for oppression in Christ's church. We are called out from our cultures to live as a counterculture of love, inviting others to join with us because of the great love that Christ has shown for his people. This then brings us to the sin of injustice and oppression in Christ's church. See, all that we have seen so far does not mean that injustice and oppression magically disappear. It is through the Holy Spirit's work among Christ's church that the sin of partiality is confronted and challenged and corrected. For example, let's turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, verses 1 to 7, because here the church of Jerusalem continued to grow and began to run into a problem. So let's read what happened. Now in those days, when a number of the disciples, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, 
whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here we read that there was a daily distribution of food to the widows. But what happened? Unfair treatment arose when the Hellenist widows were not receiving food as the Hebrew widows were. Here we have an unjust practice then that had crept into the early days of the church. And notice that this partiality was unintentional, since these widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Nevertheless, certain procedures were in place which produced partiality in the church, and this could have become oppressive if the apostles failed to act and allowed it to continue as an acceptable practice in the church. But how did the apostles respond? By recognizing the need for spirit-filled men to restore fair and equal treatment to the widows of the church. So the church prayerfully called seven men to serve them in what would become the office of deacon. And what's the result? Well, they were able to correct the sin of partiality which was present among them. And God blessed the ministry of his word with the church continuing to grow. At the same time, the most difficult struggle in the early church was over the relationship between Jew and Gentile. See, since the Jews were God's people in the Old Covenant, there arose a movement among the church to require believing Gentiles to essentially become Jews by receiving the sign of circumcision. And this ethnic partiality then threatened to compromise and ultimately overturn the unity and the quality the equality that Christ had died for his church to have. So the debate over Jews and Gentiles in the church came to the head in Acts chapter 15. So we can turn to Acts 15 when the apostles and elders in the church of Jerusalem met together to respond to this question. And after discussing the arguments that had been made by the Judaizers who were requiring circumcision, we read the letter that they agreed to here in verses 23 to 29. So this is what we read. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than the necessary things. Do you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they refuse to allow this division between Christ's people in requiring circumcision. But the Gentiles and the Jews were together as one body. Still, the Church of Christ continued to struggle over this unity and equality in Christ, as we have previously seen. 
So in Galatians 2, verses 11 and following, the Apostle Paul writes of how he rebuked Peter for his hypocrisy. He would eat in table fellowship with the Gentiles at church, but when visiting Jews came to the church, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles and showed favoritism to the Jews. So the Holy Spirit was at work through the Apostle Paul to expose their hypocrisy and restore the unity and equality that exists between all who have believed in Jesus. Or as we saw last time in James 2, verses 1 to 13, the sin of partiality arose among churches because the rich received preferential treatment over the poor and where they sat, while the poor were treated as inferiors. So it is through this Spirit-filled letter of James that the Christians are then called to correct this unjust treatments which was taking place among them. Now, why do I bring all this up? So that we will have a realistic picture of Christ's church in this age. How sin deceives us and blinds us from recognizing the injustice and oppression which is present in his church. Yes, we are distinct and different from the people around us as those who are living according to the social ethic of love. But our love is not yet perfect. And we need the Holy Spirit to work among us so that we will seek justice and stop the oppression which remains in Christ's church. Well, finally, I want to at least briefly address slavery in the New Testament church. And of course, this is a huge subject, and I'm not going to be able to adequately address it today. But there are two truths that we need to recognize for this study. First, slavery was allowed in Christ's church. Uh, we could consider several passages of Scripture here, but let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7 and read together verses 17 to 24. Because here the Apostle Paul explains how the various peoples in Christ's churches should live together. Apostle Paul writes, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now realize, none of this means that Christ approved of slavery. As we read in verse 21, which is written to slaves in the church, if you can be made free, rather use it. But at the same time, Paul is showing us there is a priority here in the spiritual over the temporal. What matters most is our freedom in Christ, not our freedom in this world. 
What matters most is that we are no longer under the oppression of sin. Not whether we've been liberated from oppression in this world. It's our spiritual freedom in Christ then that is what gives us the confidence and courage to endure the injustices and the oppressions which take place in this sinful world. But second, slavery was undermined by our oneness in Christ. And here we turn to the often neglected letter to Philemon. Philemon. Here, the Apostle Paul writes to the slave owner Philemon about his escaped slave Onesimus. And since Onesimus has come to believe in Christ, Paul is now sending him back to be reconciled with his slave owner. So listen to Paul's reasoning here in verses 15 to 16 of this letter. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So it is this equality in Christ that will eventually lead Christians in Christ's church to end the practice of slavery. Now, what does all this mean for us in Christ's church today? We'll seek to answer this question as our study continues next week. I hope we are starting to see more and more the importance of turning to Scripture to understand what God means by justice and our command to be just in this world.